1: From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. This is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and
0: welcome to Free Expression, a weekly podcast from the Wall Street Journal editorial page with me, Jerry Baker, editor at large of the journal. Thanks very much for listening. If you aren't already a subscriber, I really hope you'll sign up at Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. This week we're talking about, inevitably, I suppose, Donald Trump, the Republican Party, the 2024 presidential election, what it all might mean for U.S. security and the state of the world at a very dangerous and perhaps potentially perilous time for national security. And to talk about all this, I'm delighted to be joined this week by a veteran of the most recent Republican administration, John Bolton. Ambassador Bolton served for a brief but highly eventful year and a half as President Donald Trump's national security advisor. And of course, he wrote a book about the searing experience that he had there. Before that, Mr. Bolton served as ambassador to the United Nations under President George W. Bush and had previously served in other roles in the State Department. As we've said, he's been fiercely critical of Donald Trump. Only last week said that if the former president were elected for another term, his administration would be, in terms of its foreign policy approach, erratic, irrational, and unconstrained. Trump himself has returned Bolton's compliments, saying that if his famously hawkish former national security advisor had got his way, the U.S. would be in, quote, World War VI by now. So to talk about all this, I'm delighted to say that Ambassador John Bolton joins me now. Ambassador Bolton, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Very glad to be with you. Let's start with the inevitable. Donald Trump, uh, of course, uh, indicted last week uh, on charges relating to his attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election we may be expecting another indictment any day now in in Georgia from the uh, from the district attorney there in, in 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 Fulton County in Georgia relating to similar similar issues his attempt to overturn the 2020 election talking about the federal indictment that we saw last week from Jack Smith you've read it you've looked at it you've looked at the case you've you remember it all very well do you think it's a compelling case
1: well i think it's a very well written document very professionally done I- do think there are some difficulties with it compared to the classified documents case, which Jack Smith and his office had filed some months before. A lot depends on Donald Trump's intent here to get a conviction. And, And remember, in a criminal case, the defendant typically doesn't have to prove anything. All the defendant's lawyers have to do is induce reasonable doubt in the minds of even one juror to hang the jury up. And Trump will certainly try to obscure what he was saying, what he thought. I think that's a tough evidentiary road. There are some questions about some of the legal theories in the case. Uh, Some are, I think, more speculative. Others, I think, are much more solidly grounded. If I had my preference, and, and obviously I don't, and I'm not sure how this will shake out, but I would press at the federal level to try the documents case first, if at all possible. I do think that the cumulative effect of the indictments, including one expected in Georgia this week or next week, isn't what I predicted would be. I thought with one indictment after another that it would really have a negative political effect on Trump. That's obviously not being borne out. So my view now is the only thing that really matters politically is getting one or more of these cases to trial before the November 2024 election and getting a guilty verdict. That is the kind of earthquake that could shake up certainly the Republican Party. And just to be clear, if Trump is acquitted on any of these charges before the election or even gets a hung jury, which he will characterize as an acquittal, I think he's on his way to the Republican nomination and could well win the general election on the basis of that acquittal.
0: Well, let's talk about the sort of sequencing and the timing and the political implications of that in a minute. You said it was a very well-written indictment. As you say, there are some questionable aspects to it. A lot of conservatives, even those who aren't necessarily particularly favorable to Donald Trump, including some very strong critics of Donald Trump, people who think that Trump should have been impeached and convicted for what he did after the 2020 election, this isn't a very strong indictment that it reflects, in fact, instead a kind of politicization of the Justice Department, the Biden Justice Department going after his predecessor and his likely opponent next time around, and a a really disturbing and dangerous trend in American politics and indeed American
1: law enforcement. Do you share that view? Well, a couple things. Number one, I certainly do hold to the premise that the criminalization of politics is a bad idea. I think it risks turning us into a third world country, and i think that's very dangerous it's a trend that's been growing it's not just donald trump it's uh, it's really much larger than that second it seems to me that notwithstanding the risks and difficulties of proceeding with prosecution certainly at the federal level there are risks and dangers in not proceeding as well saying well why didn't they wait till after the election i think it's pretty clear if donald trump wins he will dismiss these cases or investigations or pardon himself if he's ever been convicted. Is this late in the political process? Well, in a sense, yes, but Donald Trump's been obstructing efforts to investigate this since since he left office. And if anything, I think the Department of Justice, special counsel's office has moved as quickly as they can to get these to trial before the election so that the people who do have a stake in the outcome here Get to know what the results are. I think one of the biggest ironies of this is that indictments are being brought by a special counsel, which was supposed to make it clear to people that politics was being taken out of the decision to prosecute. And uh, obviously, people don't believe that. I've never liked the special counsel concept. I think it's uh, detrimental to the uh, forthright pursuit of justice. But let's be clear nobody has offered any evidence that I'm aware of that Jack Smith has any political motivation at all. Maybe he does, but there's no evidence for it. I'm an alumnus of the Department of Justice. There are obviously people there who have many different political opinions. Some parts of it are liberal, the civil rights division at the litigating level, but some parts of it are very conservative. That doesn't affect the performance of the attorneys. And they're ultimately tested in court. If they get a jury to convict, that sounds like they have a pretty serious case. But if they lose, Uh, then I think that helps feed Trump's narrative that this whole thing has been a witch hunt. So I acknowledge there are risks, but look, there are going to be claims made in the political universe that if we simply withdrew from trying to pursue the law... We wouldn't have any law enforcement at all. Let me try and pin you down a little bit on that.
0: You've been very critical, as a lot of people have been very critical of what Trump did after the 2020 election up to and including and beyond January the 6th and his continuing denial of the election result and indeed of his attempts, you know, documented by Jack Smith to overturn the election result through all kinds of, frankly, crazy schemes. Do you think that behavior does represent a criminal offense, a felony that does need to be prosecuted and does need to be litigated in the criminal justice system.
1: Well, look, in this case, the prosecutors think they have the evidence. And, you know, the rule at the Justice Department, even though you can file an indictment based on probable cause, the rule is you don't go ahead unless you think you can prove every element of every offense beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's, that's an important rule because it's a very heavy burden for the prosecutors to make. I think the most likely outcome of this most recent federal indictment is that Trump will be convicted in some aspects and probably acquitted in others. The indictment tells five different stories, bringing up fake electors, trying to persuade state officials to find votes, as in the Georgia case, and the attempt to make uh, Mike Pence into an instrument in counting the electoral vote to uh, throw that process into disarray. So there are five different stories, really five parts of this that the indictment lays out and charges violations of three different federal statutes. So what that means, as I read the complaint, is there are 15 different ways Trump can be found guilty here. And I suspect he will be found guilty on some of them, and not guilty on others. It's important to note the special counsel isn't throwing anything he can up against the wall, hoping something will stick. He did not charge insurrection in connection with January 6th and the storming of the Capitol. He did not charge seditious conspiracy, which some of the January 6th defendants have been charged with. He's actually written a fairly narrowly tailored indictment. Now, look, some people are not going to be satisfied. They don't think Trump should be Tried at all. But as I say, I think there's a real risk when somebody tries to dismantle the constitutional system that if there are possible crimes committed in the course of that, they should be prosecuted. Trump's most recent attorney said, Well, there may be a technical violation of the Constitution here. That's about as ludicrous a statement as I can imagine. Now, all that said, I still believe the classified documents case is stronger. And I just wish that they had a judge in that case. To seem to be in, as intent on moving to a rapid trial as the one assigned for the January 6th case. Some people have argued, and if you read the indictment, you read it very
0: carefully, it does seem to rest heavily on Jack Smith being able to prove to a jury that Trump knew full well that he'd lost the election and that all of this was just a complete, you know, fraud to essentially stay in office knowing that he'd lost. Do you think that's true, that it does depend on being able to prove to a jury what the president's state of mind is? Or or as others have argued, do you think the fact that he'd set in train all kinds of schemes, that it doesn't have to be proven that he knew that he was telling a lie?
1: Well, I think that is part of the offense. And I think that you've got to convince a jury. This, the jury jury's not going to listen to a lot of these technical things. They want to know what was Trump doing. And if they're convinced he was making false statements that he knew full well that the election had been lost, that then the case for fraud in the minds of the jurors, I think, becomes that much stronger. There's no doubt in my mind, based on my 17 months in the White House with him, that he knew that he had lost. But this is where this question, a reasonable doubt in a juror's mind, becomes so important. You know, the difference between civil litigation and criminal litigation is in civil cases at the federal level, you only have to win by a preponderance of the evidence. That's the standard. And people say that's 51 to 49 percent. If you've got 51 percent of the evidence in your favor, that's a preponderance. You win. Proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, it's probably impossible. The Supreme Court said you can't put a numerical value on it. It's a moral certainty is the way they say it. But lawyers talk about percentages anyway, and the numbers range from 95 to 99 percent sure that that eliminates reasonable doubt. That's a heavy burden to meet. And the prosecutors have taken a risk on that. One juror can bring this whole thing to a stop. And while it would be perfectly permissible to take that case back to trial again with a new jury, it would not be double jeopardy. Nonetheless, Trump will spin a hung jury as equivalent to being not guilty. And I think we'll receive an enormous political boost from an acquittal or a hung jury. We've got to take a break there. But when we come back, I'll have more with John Bolton about Donald Trump and the various
0: legal perils he faces. But also, we'll be talking about the national security challenge the United States faces from both Russia and, more importantly, from China. Stay with us. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM.
1: Let's create. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker.
0: I'm back with former National Security Advisor Donald Trump, Ambassador John Bolton. On the documents case, I wanted to talk about that. Do you think that's a slam dunk legally in terms of what we know so far of the evidence?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, I can relate to it, as can hundreds, if not thousands of other former employees of the executive branch of government who had security clearances. If somebody were to leave the White House or the Department of State or Department of Defense or the intelligence community with 300 plus classified documents, you can believe they'd be prosecuted and they would go to jail. So part of my reasoning on the documents case is that Trump was the president. He was the leader of everybody with a security clearance. And if he can get away with flouting the law, it sets a terrible example all the way down the line and well into the future. People say, but the general public will find it hard to understand what's significant in bed classified documents. I don't buy that at all. I think the general public understands, depending on what these documents are, are just how dangerous it is for the country. People remember things like loose lips sink ships. I mean, give the general public a little more credit. The real criticism of the documents case is how to handle the classified information. And there's a a statute, actually, Congress passed on that to prevent what was once called gray mail of defendants threatening to make documents that are classified public and thus expose sensitive information and potentially compromised sources and methods. But the statute Congress passed, the Classified Information Procedures Act, does not give a defendant new substantive rights. It's simply a way to avoid declassifying more than is necessary. And the real concern I think some people have is that's going to take a long time. I'm going to make a bet on Jack Smith here. You know, they found over 300 classified documents in Trump's possession in the document indictment They only list 31 or 32. So how did that 10% get picked? I think one criterion was obviously how important these documents were. Something that's just classified at the confidential level, maybe it doesn't seem very significant. That's probably not the greatest document to rest a case on, but something that reveals more serious information that helps convince a juror this really is important. But I think if Jack Smith and his team have done their job, they have already gone to the intelligence community, the state and defense departments, whoever might be involved here, to say, look, what of these 30 plus documents can we safely declassify? In other words, he may already have consensus from those who would be most affected by making these documents public that they can accept it in whole or in part. This may turn out to be easier and shorter than people think. I don't know the answer to that. It's a hypothesis. But if Jack Smith and his team are as good prosecutors as some people think. I believe that may be well underway. And yet, as you say, the timing there may be
0: slower than for the election case. So the judge in presiding over that case is initially is now, I think, May of next year, is set for the trial. And that was before, of course, Jack Smith came up with these new charges or new evidence related to this, which seem to be even more incriminating for Trump, but presumably which open up a whole new set of discovery requirements and everything else, which will push back that May 2024 date, is there any reasonable prospect, given timing, that May 24 itself is only six months away from the presidential election? Is there any way that if Donald Trump is the nominee of the Republican Party, that the government can really go ahead with a prosecution of one of the two presidential candidates in that time frame? Or is it going to have to be postponed till after the election?
1: Well, you know, look, I could say I'm a presidential candidate, too. I could say I've got a lot of First Amendment things I want to do. I've got a lot of articles and op-eds to write. I've got a lot of speeches to give. It's what Trump does as a professional matter is his own choice. And if you can defeat the legal system simply by saying, well, I'm a prominent candidate for president, then you've created presidential immunity. But traditionally, the Department try to avoid getting involved in,
0: you know, especially in high profile elections? I mean, aren't there protocols and conventions that actually you don't pursue prosecutions against kind of prominent political candidates?
1: Well, only in a few months, September, October, before the election, that often decisions can be postponed. The prosecution in the documents case asked for a trial in December of this year. And frankly, I think if my hypothesis about the classified documents turns out to be correct, I think they easily could have done it in December of this year. It's Trump who's asking for delay because he doesn't want the trial before the election. It's so perfectly obvious, you know, you'd have to say all the rest of us see it, but the courts don't. He's trying to get it past the point where it could affect him in the election. And I do believe that a criminal defendant should be given his full constitutional rights. There's no point in trying to railroad it. But there is a public interest here just as great, I think, in knowing whether a jury of his peers will find Trump guilty or not. And that's the most unfortunate thing about the May trial date is that it takes place after most of the Republican primaries and caucuses. So Republican voters during that season will be voting, perhaps voting for Trump, with the risk that by the time of the Republican convention, he will be a convicted felon. And I'll guarantee that may not affect the MAGA hardcore But I tell you, it guarantees his defeat in November because I don't think most Americans, Democrat, Republican or independent, really want to vote for a convicted felon. And yet that fact apparently won't be known before Republicans have to vote in their primaries. Ambassador, tell me what you think is going on with the Republican Party. You
0: know, you've been a lifelong Republican. I think certainly a prominent Republican for 30 years or more. You understand the Republican Party well. You've served in Republican administrations. You've campaigned for Republican candidates. How have we got to this situation where it does seem that everything you've laid out here, and a lot of people would agree with you, the government's made a very strong case that we have a former president who broke the law over the the handling of classified documents. A pretty strong case, you think. Others might disagree, but a reasonably strong case that he has potential criminal liability over his attempt to overturn the election. And as you've just laid out, we could have a convicted felon as the Republican nominee. How did the Republican Party get into this condition where somehow the more outrageous the president's behavior and what would normally by any conventional standards seem to be disqualifying the candidate's behavior, the more they seem to think he should be kind of enthroned as the Republican candidate.
1: Well, I think it's true in both parties that we've drifted away from the idea that politics is about governance and deciding what policies will be implemented at the federal government level. And it's more performance art. That's what Congress looks like today. It's not people doing the serious and nitty gritty and sometimes unpleasant business of legislating, they're engaged in social media, just like influencers in social media. Same is true of the Democrats. You know, if they talk any more about the Russia collusion line of thinking as to which no evidence was produced, and believe me, if I had seen any evidence of it when I was in the White House and came out, it would have put it in my book. People have become more interested, I think, in the entertainment value of politics than anything else. There was a conference some weeks back. I think Trump spoke and a number of other people. And one of the uh, speakers was Megyn Kelly, the former Fox anchor, who said she thought in a very positive way, she thought Trump should get the Republican nomination, would get the nomination because he was the biggest middle finger around. Well, I didn't learn government as looking for that particular digit. I thought we were supposed to be picking people who would do the right thing with the policies of the government and push us in the right direction. I think that's almost a sidebar at this point compared to the culture wars and the the partisanship that's developed. And I attribute a lot of that problem to Donald Trump without question. But believe me, there's plenty of blame to go around in both parties. And I think it's obviously very unhealthy. Trump, I hope and believe, though, is an aberration. And the day he disappears, I think the Republican Party can be brought back to where I think its foundation should be, which is a Reaganite party.
0: And to be clear, if you said it, you think Trump can't be elected. Certainly if he is convicted between now and next November, you think he can't win the general election. Are you in the camp of people who think he just can't win anyway and that he's a loser and that if he does get the nomination the Republicans are doomed to lose?
1: Well, I think that's the most likely outcome, but I have to say we're dealing with the Democrats who at this point seem to have a suicide wish and what is unknown at this point is that the electorate in 2024 will contain a significant group of people, as it did in 2016, as it did with the larger group in 2020, and what looks like in twenty four will be an even larger group of people who don't like either candidate if it's Trump versus Biden. We've got polls that say 70% of the electorate don't want to see a rematch of 2020, and yet it looks like, as of now that's what we're going to get. So this large group of people who don't like either candidate will have to decide who they dislike less. And it may turn out because I don't think Biden is anywhere near as popular as the Democratic leadership seems to think. And I think his capacity to do the job comes ever more into question every day that goes on. In that circumstance of who do you like less, Trump could win. Let's talk about
0: policy then rather than politics. And in particular, that, that policy choice that may be on offer, insofar as it is a policy choice next November. What may be on offer? And in particular, the field of policy that you've been most involved in over the last 20 or 30 years, which is foreign policy and national security. You just last week, in an article in The Hill, you said that his foreign policy approach would be characterized as being erratic, irrational and unconstrained, if that's the case, and again, you work very closely with him, you saw him up close, whatever you may think about Joe Biden and the failures of the Biden administration foreign policy, which I'm sure you think are many, in those circumstances, given what you think about Trump and what you've seen of Trump, would you, if that were the choice between Trump and Biden, could you vote for Donald Trump?
1: No, absolutely not. I think he's not fit to be president and not just on national security matters. The only thing that matters to Trump is Trump. He doesn't have a philosophy. He doesn't think in policy terms in any sense of the word that anybody in Washington or around the country who cares about public policy understands. His decisions don't follow any particular patterns. They vary from one hour to the next, depending on who the last person in the door was. And I do think that while the damage that Trump caused in his first term is repairable and indeed over time is being repaired, I'm very much worried that a second term would permit him to do damage that would not be repairable. Now, that doesn't mean I'll vote for Biden either. In 2020, I wrote in, I live in Maryland, so I wrote in the name of a conservative Republican. They're not being a conservative Republican on the ballot. And if it's the two of them, again, I'll do the same thing in twenty four.
0: Now, you know that a lot of Trump supporters and maybe even Trump himself fires back at you when you say these kind of things. He said famously after you wrote your very critical memoir of the Trump administration in which you laid out a lot of these concerns and indeed judgments that you make about Trump. He essentially said you were a warmonger and that if you'd had your way, I think he said the United States would be in World War Six by now. Now, you know we can sort of obviously discount the extreme rhetoric, which is typical from Trump. But there is a view that, that actually, look, as you say, he may all be about Trump and he may not be the most sophisticated understanding of global affairs or national security. But he's presided over a country for four years that was at peace. He avoided getting into foreign entanglements. Whereas you are associated, obviously, particularly with the strong arguments in favor of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the prosecution of the Afghanistan war, neither of which particularly ended well. You have been very, very hawkish and warning of the potential need to strike Iran. In other words, Trump supporters would say, look, you didn't like Donald Trump because he's basically not pursued a policy of, you know, invading foreign countries with disastrous consequences. What's your response to that?
1: Well, they'd be wrong about that. Trump's problem is he didn't pursue any policy at all. But if you want to look at the outcome of some of what he did, take a look at Afghanistan, the deal that he negotiated, which the Taliban were violating even before he left office, but which Biden carried out, has resulted in a catastrophe in Afghanistan. And the withdrawal of American forces there leaves us at risk to terrorist attack from terrorists who are even now still going into Afghanistan and opens the country for exploitation by Russia and China. China's already in there getting mineral benefits that will help Them that we could have had. I mean, I'd be happy to go down the list at length. My point is that Trump is out of his league in dealing with foreign leaders. He says, Well, I had a good relationship with Xi Jinping. I had a good relationship with Vladimir Putin and so on. I have been in the room with Trump when he's met with foreign leaders like that. And I tell you, I've observed very closely. I think they believe he's an easy mark and would welcome him becoming president because they think they could advance their national interest over ours. Let's
0: get off the topic of Donald Trump and talk about national security concerns as they are themselves. We're seeing, obviously, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which many people would watch with some satisfaction, has gone disastrously for Russia and with great admiration for what the Ukrainians have done. But Russia is increasingly giving all the indications that it's got no intentions of backing down there. The Ukrainian counteroffensive that began in the spring made some progress, but maybe I don't think the progress that a lot of people were hoping for it. Is there a reasonable expectation here that by continuing to support the Ukrainian military effort, the Ukrainian defense with the kind of support that the U.S. has been giving it, is there any reasonable expectation? Do you think that this can end in a relatively short period of time, in a way that is clearly favorable to Ukraine and indeed to us and to Ukraine's allies?
1: Well, I don't see it ending favorably in a short period of time, in large part because I think the U.S. has proceeded without a strategy in the conflict deterred by Russian threats of conventional military pressure elsewhere or saber rattling about tactical nuclear weapons. And I think it's something that puts a lot of Republicans in a very difficult position, supporting the Ukrainians in a war where they don't think the president really understands what he's doing. I mean, just take, for example, the argument one after the other about shall we supply this weapon system? Shall we supply that weapon system? How about that weapon system? And eventually the stuff finally gets through to Ukraine, but not in a strategic way. Strategy conceptually is not that hard. You define what your objectives are, and then you make sure you have the resources to accomplish them. That's not what we've done in Ukraine. We've fed in piecemeal capabilities that the Ukrainians have turned a good advantage, but this war has not been fought strategically. The Ukrainians have done an amazing job. I give them due credit. I acknowledge as Secretary of Defense Austin said, I think about a year ago, that the Russians are feeding their army into a wood chipper. I think that's an entirely good thing for the United States. But I do think this war would be in much different shape and could be over by now if we had had a more strategic approach. And I think the lack of strategy I have this eerie feeling about Vietnam that gradual escalation, bit by bit by bit, as American public support for the war declines, you get to the point where actually contemporary military historians of Vietnam, I think, make a very compelling case we could have won if public support held out. But it didn't. So we had the result we did. I just have these nightmares that Biden is doing, in effect, in very different circumstances, I acknowledge, but to the same consequence, uh, what Lyndon Johnson did.
0: As you know, there are some people, including people who are, what well, could be terms, hawkish on foreign policy, who argue that the level of U.S. support and especially the way it's depleting certain U.S. military stocks and distracting the United States in terms of its diplomatic and strategic focus, that this is overall a distraction and, and a distraction from the really the major geopolitical challenge and indeed potential confrontation the United States faces over the next however long it may be, which is against China. And that even though Russia and China are allied and are clearly seem to be moving more and more. In lockstep and a new axis against the West. That the real threat is China is making increasingly belligerent noises about Taiwan. At any point that they may seize the opportunity of the US being so heavily focused and supplying so much military assistance to Ukraine, to strike against Taiwan again. Notwithstanding your criticisms that the administration is not doing enough on Ukraine. Is the effort in Ukraine a distraction from what is the larger geopolitical challenge for the U.S.?
1: No, I don't. I mean, I do think China is the existential threat of the 21st century, but I think it's America is a global power and has to be capable of responding to challenges in a global way. I do think we've seen highlighted the inadequacies of the U.S. defense supply capability in the amount we've had to put into Ukraine. This is something that happened at the end of the Cold War. Remember the peace dividend? People said, well, history's over. You know, we don't need all these capabilities. We do. Our national defense budget today takes uh, slightly over 4% if you add in veterans benefits of GDP. It ought to be at the 5 6% range, as it was during the Reagan administration. And it's just a mistake to say, well, you only have to worry about Asia. If People should note, China is buying considerable amounts of Russian oil and gas. It's laundering Russian money through its opaque financial system to escape sanctions. The French National Security Advisor recently said they are supplying weapons to the Russians. In Beijing, they are watching how the United States and its allies behave in Ukraine very carefully. And I think they believe if the U.S. won't stand up to aggression against a country in Europe that's applying for NATO membership, what are they gonna do if a country in Asia is threatened by China? And if they come to the wrong conclusion, that endangers Taiwan even more than it's in danger already. Do you think the U.S. is doing enough right now to
0: deter China from whatever action it may be planning to take in Taiwan?
1: Not nearly enough. I think the Biden administration is so obsessed with trying to negotiate a climate deal with China and people are so worried about agitating Beijing that I think the Chinese are reading this the wrong way. I think the risk to Taiwan and other places in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, along China's long land border in South Asia, I think things are in a more and more precarious situation. What more should be done? Is is it a question of beefing up
0: our military presence in the region? Are we doing enough in terms of alliances with countries in the region? Are we doing enough to directly, diplomatically, or indeed maybe even economically in terms of economic sanctions, enough to deter China? What more could we be doing?
1: More of all of the above. I mean, I think Biden has taken some steps. He has moved the Asian security quad further along, Japan, India, Australia, and the United States. I think the AUKUS submarine deal with the UK and Australia is an excellent step forward. But there's much, much more That can be done. And there's a trilateral summit coming up in Washington with South Korea and Japan uh, soon. I think that's an excellent opportunity to try and get more trilateral, more multilateral defense cooperation, analogous to NATO. I'm not suggesting we're going to have it Asian NATO anytime soon, although I do think NATO could play a larger role in the Pacific. Really, we've got to look at China as a whole of society threat, starting with the business risk, the threat, the reality of China is stealing intellectual property from our companies and our businesses and then using it back against us. We've been naive about China for a long time now, and I think that's changing. I just hope it's changing fast enough. Ambassador John Bolton, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression.
0: Please join me again next week for another conversation I'll have with a leading figure in the world of politics, business, culture, or other fields. In the meantime, thank you very much for joining me, and goodbye. Have a great week.